Well, if you're visiting with us again, it is our practice to take the word of God. We open it and we study it together verse by verse through books of the Bible. So take your Bible and go with me to the book of James. We are studying James and we are in chapter two. And real quick, I'm going to mention it at the end, but I want to mention it now. The next two weeks are going to be really important weeks if you have a Roman Catholic friend. If you have a Roman Catholic relative, family member, neighbor, coworker, the Roman Catholics, if they know their Bible, if they've been well taught, many don't. But if some of them do, many of them go to James chapter 2 to try to prove that salvation is by faith and their works. We're going to look at that very clearly next week and the week after. So I mentioned that to you so that you can be praying and thinking about who you can invite to hear the word of God. The gospel would be so clear as we rightly understand James 2 on the importance of faith and works. But today, James 2 verses 8 to 13 on favoritism, that is the sin of favoritism, which evidences and shows a lack of love and a lack of mercy. Last week, we began the section, James 2, the command is in verse 1, to not show favoritism. And then in verses 2 and 3, James gives a little bit of a story, a little bit of a parable of a, of a Christian gathering. And you've got a rich guy and a poor guy who enters, and you show favoritism to one, but not the other. And then you show favoritism by judging with evil motives in verse 4, but God doesn't do that in verse 5. He doesn't judge us and choose us by our externals. And then he gives a little bit of current events in verses 6 and 7, that it is the rich who are actually oppressing and dragging the poor into court, and they are blaspheming the name of Christ. It makes no sense to show favoritism to the rich. It's just not a, not a sensible thing. Now we come to verse 8. This is James's biblical, exegetical proof for why favoritism is wrong. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is it that really sets Christianity apart? I mean, if somebody were to ask you that question, what is it that really makes Christianity unique? What is it that distinguishes Christianity? Who are we? 
And I suppose we could answer that in a number of different ways. We might say that we are unrighteous sinners who have been made holy in Christ and we pursue joyful Christ-likeness. We could say that we are a transformed people of love. We could say that we who have received mercy from God are showing mercy to others. We could say that we who have recognized our guilt have received the grace of God and we seek to walk in newness of life. What is it that sets Christianity apart? Well, we could say we were enemies of God, and yet we are now recipients of the grace of God. Now we want to live for the glory and the praise of God. I can illustrate that in one way. It was in 1943, there was an amazing work of God among a Japanese concentration camp. It was actually a year earlier, 1942. This Japanese concentration camp was a sea of mud, a sea of filth, mingled with hatred and violence and blood. The scene, it was just a scene of grueling labor and brutal treatment by the Japanese guards. There was hardly any food in this particular camp. And the law that pervaded the entire camp was every man for himself. The story goes, 12 months later, the entire place was changed. The entire ground was cleared totally clean. In fact, on Christmas morning, just one year later, 2,000 men were gathering together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask the question, what happened during that year? One of the prisoners had shared his last little crumb of food with another man who was in desperate need. That one prisoner was a Christian. He shared that last crumb of food, and he died. As they were clearing out his stuff, among his belongings, they found a Bible. They found a Bible, and some who witnessed the act of love of this one prisoner who gave all that he had and then he died, they wondered, could there be something in this book that that would lead the prisoner to sacrifice for others? One by one, the men in that Japanese concentration camp read that Bible. And one by one... The Spirit of God saved them. The Spirit of God gripped the hearts of men and changed their lives. And in a period of less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and a moral revolution in that entire camp. The lesson, the grace of God, and the royal law of love that is lived out did its work. Did its work. 
That is what sets Christianity apart. It is the grace of God working in the hearts of sinners so that those who are changed by the grace of God now show that grace that they've received. They show that to others. It's an amazing thing that God would show mercy to outcasts. Kind of like Rahab in the book of Joshua. She was brought into the worship of the true God and she was received as a believer in the Lord. It's kind of like Mephibosheth who was shown mercy, undeserved grace by King David because after all, he was from the family of Saul. It's like the leper in Luke chapter 5 who was once a social outcast and yet he received mercy. He received the touch and the healing and the grace and the love. What's the point of these three Old Testament stories and the New Testament story? Jesus shows mercy to outsiders. We who have received that mercy then show that to others. If you're a believer here today, you've received the mercy of God, you who were once an outsider. And God calls you now to show that mercy to others. In James chapter 2, James, Pastor James, the brother of our Lord, is getting very practical in the short little letter to the early Jewish Christian believers. And in chapter 2, he wants the believers to know what true faith is really like. In verses 1 to 13, he's going to talk about faith and your need to love others well, meaning you can't show favoritism if we're going to love others well. Next week, in verses 14 to the end, we're going to talk about faith and the need to live out your faith well. So now we're looking at love. Next week and the week after, we will look at living out your faith. But here in the opening section of chapter 2, James has highlighted the sin of favoritism. The sin of partiality, the sin of prejudice. The sin of discrimination, the sin of judging people based upon externals. James exposed the sin. He illustrated the sin. He described why it is so sinful, how it goes against the gospel of God's grace. Remember last week, we looked in these opening verses as to why the sin of favoritism is so evil and So inconsistent for a Christian. Well, it's inconsistent with the clear command of God. It's inconsistent with our family bond in Christ. It's inconsistent with the gospel of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's it's inconsistent with the sovereign election that God, in verse 5, did not choose us because we were so great on the outside, but he chose the poor in the world to be rich in faith, all by his great grace. It is inconsistent with the royal law of love. That's what we're going to look at today. What James is doing in verses 8 to 13, this is our text today, James is going to provide an airtight, inescapable argument that the sin of favoritism, the sin of partiality, is a sin against the royal law of love. How can we love other people? The Bible says that, Old and New Testament. How can we love other people if we're showing partiality? 
We, we can't. How are we loving other people if we are showing favoritism? Answer, we're not. And that's what James is going to show today. In showing favoritism, you're not loving others. What's the lesson? By the grace of God, let's seek to mortify and put to death the sin of judging others based upon externals. It could be how they look, how they talk, their status, their power, their prestige, their position, anything that might appear on the outside. James is making the case, not only practically, but now today, biblically and exegetically, that favoritism is sin. And I want to show you this by giving you a really simple outline. I mean, it's so simple, my kids have already memorized this outline. It's so simple, they're single words, and I want you to get this. You can jot them down. Number one, I want to show you the goal. What's the goal of this whole thing? The goal. Number two, the guilt. We have to look at the guilt. Number three, the grace. The goal, the guilt, and the grace. James is going to show us biblically with an airtight, exegetical argument from the Old Testament that favoritism is sin. Let's begin with the first point, and that's the goal. The goal. And the goal is found, you look in your Bible at verses 8 and 9, it's a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Here's the goal, it's to love your neighbor. That's the goal. That's what we want. Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as trans. Gressers, what's the goal? Pastor James, what do you want of us as your congregation? He would say, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, like Leviticus 19.18 says, then we're not going to show partiality. He calls it, in verse 8, the royal law. What What an interesting phrase, the royal law. Literally in the Greek, it's the law of the king. Because Jesus is the king. He is the king. This is the law from heaven's king. What is it? Both the Old Testament and the New. We are to love our neighbor. And of course, it all begins with God. Our God is the God of love. And what God has done for sinners is all summed up in love. That God would sacrifice himself for the benefit of others, even those who do not deserve it. That's love. That is love. This is why in Exodus chapter 34, in verse 6, God reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in covenant love. Who is our God? He's the God of love. And 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34, tells us that the love of God is everlasting. It, it, it endures forever. And we learn in Psalm 23, it's the great 
psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, the very last verse of Psalm 23 tells us that surely God's covenant love will pursue me all the days of my life. The love of God is a pursuing love. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, God draws his people with love. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It all begins with God. It all begins with the character of God, the gospel of God. And if the love of God has transformed you, we are to love others. The love that we have received from God, we are to demonstrate that to others. That's what the Jewish people asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Remember the question from the Jewish leaders, Matthew 22, verse 36? They said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even Jesus acknowledged The greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. We read in Romans chapter 13, the very summary of the law. In Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, that we are to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For if you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. Paul goes on to say, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it's all summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And maybe just one more scripture, 1 John 4, verse 11. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So Christian, hear this. As you hear point one from James chapter two, what's the goal? The goal is to love one another. That is the goal. And you see it right here back in James two, verse eight. James says, if you're fulfilling the law of the king, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. Do it. Love your neighbor. You're doing well if you do it. But verse nine, if... If you are showing partiality, maybe when you show partiality. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all sized people up externally. We've all judged people and made a conclusive decision in our minds based upon how they Look how they present themselves, how they talk, what kind of lifestyle they live, their economic status, whatever it might be. We've all been there. We've done it. Verse 9, James says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. What is, what is James saying? He says the goal, the goal, the goal is to love your neighbor. And if we're loving our neighbor, we're not going to show partiality. Let's flip that. If we are showing partiality, in that moment, we're not loving our neighbor. 
were sinning. You get that. You understand that. You say, well, Jeff, how do I, in the context of the local church here, give me some practical ways that I can guard from this. Give me some practical ways that I can, yes, put off partiality, but put on biblical love. How do I do that? And I'm glad you asked, because I've got some practical suggestions for you. How do you love one another in the church congregation? Please hear this. Number one, you must give people the benefit of the doubt. You must give people the benefit of the doubt. What does that mean? You don't walk around suspicious of others. You don't assume the heart motives of others. It's very easy to do so and to size people up thinking, ha, I know why he did that. I know why she did that. I can't believe she would have done that or they would have gone there or whatever. We want to give others the benefit of the doubt, not being suspicious and not assuming motives. Another way that you can love, number two, is to refuse to hear and believe all gossip. I mean, literally walk away. Refuse to hear, refuse to believe any gossip and slander. And the Proverbs are full of the dangers of gossip and slander. If we're going to love one another, we need to give the benefit of the doubt, refuse to hear and believe gossip and slander. Let me give you a number three, another way that we can love others, not show partiality. Number three, communicate rather than assume. It's good for a husband and wife, good for parents and children, good for those in the church congregation. We communicate rather than assume. You and I can make expectations and assumptions all day long. We might be wrong, though. So it's good to communicate humbly, gently, meekly, rather than to assume. A fourth way uh, that we can put on Christian love in the congregation, number four, is to humbly confess when you've sinned, ask for forgiveness, and grant it. It's to confess, ask for, and give forgiveness. Our church congregation should be the most humble, confessing, and forgiving people around. You know, I sinned. Will you forgive me in this? Absolutely. I forgive you. God has forgiven me. I will not bring it up again. A wonderful example of humility, confession, asking for forgiveness, and granting forgiveness. Number five, another way that we can practically put on love. Number five, we ought to serve others sacrificially, practically, and cheerfully. I love it when people say, Pastor Jeff, I'm new to the church. How do I serve here? And my answer is always the same. Do you see all the people around here? Get to know people. Serve them. Find ways to serve others practically, sacrificially, cheerfully. Another way that you can love one another is to greet all the saints in Christ with warmth and interest. All over the Pauline epistles, he'll, he'll end his letters, greet all the saints. Thessalonians, he does it. Philippians, he does it. Greet all the saints. Oh, what a wonderful way to guard from partiality. I want to make it my goal to greet the saints 
all of them. Younger, older, single, married, those who look like me, those who don't, to greet with love. Number seven, another way that you can practically love in the church congregation, pray for the spiritual growth of one another. But not only pray for the spiritual growth, that is so vital. Number two, speak words that will aid their spiritual growth when you enter and when you leave. Speak words that will aid spiritual growth. This is the goal. You see, James is writing to a congregation that he loves. It's convicting. But he says, we ought to show love to each other. And if we're showing favoritism and partiality, if we're judging people based upon externals, we're sinning. How do we not show partiality? What should we put on in its place? These are some very practical ways that we can show love in the context of the church. May the Lord help us to live out the goal, number one, of loving one another. Number two, in your outline, Not only the goal, James says, the goal is to obey the royal law and love our neighbor. Number two, the guilt. Fasten your seatbelt. This is tough. Look at verse 10. James is writing to those whom he loves, a congregation that he loves, and he says in verse 10, notice the word for, he's explaining what he's just said. I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to love your neighbor, but let me explain verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law, maybe there were some in the church that said, you know, James, we're good. We're we're keeping these commands. We're keeping these. We're keeping the, the public ones, the bigger ones. We're okay. Verse 10, four, let me explain. Whoever keeps the whole law, And yet you stumble at just one point, you have become guilty of it all. What's the guilt? You're a lawbreaker. James is using language, very intentionally so, from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Let me read it for you from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm or obey all the words of the law by doing them. Well, we're in trouble. (laughs) Cursed is the one who doesn't abide by all the things written in the law. Next chapter, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, Moses says, But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God, if you don't observe all of his commandments and his statutes, which I am charging you today, that all the curses will come upon you. Well, I've not kept all the commands of you. Later on in verse 20, the Lord will send upon you curses and confusion and rebuke and all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed and until you perish because of all the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. Back to James 2. What is James the pastor saying? He says in verse 10, I need to explain the point and drive it deeper. That if you say that you're a good person and you keep the whole law, but you stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. James is acting like a skilled attorney. I mean, you're indicted. You're summoned. The evidence is mounted. The charges are given. Guilty. 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 
if you and I were backpacking together in Iraq. And as we're hiking along the hills and through the deserts there, we accidentally went across the border in one of the hilly desert northern areas, came into the border of Iran. They found us. They saw us. And they said, you transgressed. And we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It was only six inches across the line. It was just one step. We're back on the Iraqi side. And they say, you crossed the line. You're going to jail. You're imprisoned. You're a transgressor. You say, but it was only just one step. It was only six inches. It wasn't very much. Even if we stayed out the whole rest of the hike, but yet just that one six-inch step across the line, you're a transgressor. It's like the Apostle James, it's like James the writer is allowing no wiggle room. It's like he's cornering everyone and he says, you can't escape. By the way, in the Old Testament law, there are 613 laws, 248 positive, 365 negative. And we could just add to that in the New Testament at another 1,050 commands that our Lord gives. You say you keep the law? You say you keep them, keep them all and you're a good person, but you sin just one time. James says in verse 10, you're guilty of breaking all of it. It's like, it's like you could walk a tightrope. And you could make it nearly all the way across, but if you take one misstep near the end, you fall down. You could do a triathlon. You could do a triathlon. You could, you could smash every record with your running. You could smash every record with your cycling. But if you mess up and you blow it in your swimming, you lose and you blow it all. The law. Is like a, it's like a mirror. One small crack means it's broken. It's like, a, it's like a drink. One poisonous drop of acid mixed in that drink ruins the whole thing. James is saying in verse 10, he's elaborating so clearly that if you say that you keep the whole law and yet you stumble at just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And now he's going to elaborate exegetically. Look at verse 11. He's just going to pull out two Old Testament commands Kids, you know this from your catechism, from the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments is sometimes called the Decalogue. Here are two commands that James is going to bring out. Verse 11, for God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. I don't, Pastor James, I don't commit adultery. Pastor James, I don't commit murder. Why does he bring those two out? Why not the other ones? Because James knows what his brother taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Your heart disposition of anger is murder in your heart. The lust that you have toward that woman in your heart, that's adultery in your heart. We're guilty. We're guilty. 
It's like James is bringing out the second half of the Decalogue, those dealings with your relationship with your neighbor. And the simple point is you can't pick and choose which commands you're going to obey. You can't have a merit system and say that your good outweighs the bad. You can't be more acceptable to God if you keep most, but you disobey a few. You cannot compare yourself with other people and say, well, I'm better than him. God demands absolute, impeccable, lifelong, unquestionable obedience to every single law in the Bible every moment of your life. That's what he demands. He's the lawgiver, he's the judge. And because he's so righteous and he upholds his law, that's his justice, he demands perfection. He demands righteousness. He demands obedience. Guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Boys and girls, you're guilty. Men and women, church member or not, we are guilty. I mean, this is one of those little one-verse evangelism scriptures you could put in your tool belt and bring it out often. Oh, everybody says they're good. Everybody says they compare themselves with others. Yeah, but God says, if you keep the whole law. But do you stumble at just one point? Well, everybody does. Okay. You stumble at one point, you're guilty of breaking The whole law. Guilty. This is the problem with works righteousness. I try to do good. I try to be better. I try to obey more. I try to let my good outweigh the bad. I try to be a good citizen. I try to love people and and just treat people with kindness and fairness. God would say, yeah, but do you keep my law perfectly? It's an amazing verse. I actually came across it when I was in my hotel in Myanmar with our missionary, Liam Kim, and I was reading a sermon by John Flavel on this verse. It's Galatians 5, verse 3. It says, if you're going to be circumcised, you need to keep the whole law. Like, in other words, if you're going to try to say, I'm going to keep the law, you might as well just keep the whole thing if you're going to get to God that way. If you say, well, I'm just going to try to be good and do good and work my way to God, it's like, it's like Paul is saying in Galatians 5, well, you might as well just keep the whole law. You, you can't. You can't. But you know what's so fascinating to me, though, when I was reading this sermon by John Flavel? He said Jesus was circumcised. And when he was born, under the law, obedient to the law, He was, in fact, circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he had to keep the whole law perfectly. He had to do what you and I can't do. He he did obey the full law. 
He did fulfill the law. He, he did it. Where, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. Where you and I fail, Jesus has succeeded. We are the guilty ones. Jesus is the guiltless one. That's the context of Paul saying, if you're going to try to get to God by your circumcision, you've fallen from grace. You've left the only means of salvation, faith in Christ, the grace of God. And yet Jesus came under the law, born under the law, to obey the law, to fulfill and obey and complete what you and I could never do. Verse 10, we might keep the law, part of the law, so we think, but we have stumbled, we're guilty of it all. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. What an amazing truth. He says in verse 11, don't commit adultery. He also said, don't commit murder. And if you do commit, don't don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of The law, what guilt, what guilt. We've all been there. We are there. We've seen the goal. What's the goal? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. How how do we not show partiality? How do we put off favoritism? Love your neighbor. That's the goal. The second is the guilt. We've seen the guilt. James says, you say you're going to keep the whole law, but you sin at just one point. You're guilty. Praise the Lord. The scriptures don't end here. Because point three is the grace. The grace. Yes, the goal. Yes, the guilt. Third, the grace. And you you want to hear what the grace is? It's right here in verses 12 and 13 of James 2. Oh, this is amazing. Why? The grace is this. You have received grace. Mercy. Praise the Lord for that. It's like the blind men in Matthew chapter 20 when Jesus is is going by and these blind men are crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he stops. And he has compassion on them. And he touches them. They didn't deserve it. They had nothing to offer him. They were blind. They were beggars. They were annoying to the crowds. They told them to be quiet. Is there hope? Is there any hope for the guilty? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. The grace that you have received is what you are to show to others. Look at verse 12. Look at what James says, verse 12. So here's the conclusion. So, therefore, speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. You, you love this law of liberty. Why? It gives you spiritual freedom. You love to follow Christ. You want to live out your faith. Verse 13. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is such a fascinating writer here. Such a great pastor. He's using language from his brother from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Listen to Luke chapter 6. This is just what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Jesus said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, in the well-known Beatitudes, he said in verse 8, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Sorry, that's Matthew 5 verse 7. They shall receive mercy. If God has shown you mercy, you and I ought to show mercy to others. And so James is saying in verse 12, Christian, believer in the Lord Jesus, verse 12, you need to speak and you need to act. By the way, that's what he said in chapter 1. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Chapter 1, he talked about speech. And then he talked about actions. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a hearer and a doer of the word. James is all about what you say and how you live. You need, verse 12, to speak and you need to act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. This is not salvation according to grace or not. No, no, no. This is a judgment for rewards for believers. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about it. Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment of Christ. We are to speak and we are to act like those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What does that mean? That we're going to be judged for how we have lived our Christian life for rewards. Not a judgment of salvation, but a judgment of rewards. It's for believers. Pastor James is simply saying snobbery, favoritism, partiality is not at all being a Christian. It's not at all Christian-like. It's not at all living out the Christian life. It's like James is saying, if you are to speak and you are to act, I want you to really genuinely show me from your lifestyle that you love others. That you're living out your Christian life. That you genuinely are seeking to please the Lord. It's like James is saying in verse 12, you can say what you want. You can profess what you want all day long. But Pastor James is saying, show me how you live. And that's the real indicator of true spirituality. More on that next week. But now verse 13, look at verse 13, because now we come to this final verse, and it's, and it's, a, it's an extreme contrast. There's two extremes, kind of like Proverbs, a very wise statement. Verse 13, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Talk about a warning. I don't want to be here. This is God's judgment on the unbeliever. Their lives are characterized. Hear that. Their lives are characterized 
by lack of mercy. Their, their life is characterized by partiality and hardness of heart and selfishness and lack of love for others and just prideful self-love, kind of like the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Remember that guy? He went out and he was forgiven an innumerable debt and he's walking out and he finds another slave who owns him a pretty good size, a sizable debt, but he will not forgive him. But he was forgiven an unpayable debt, but he was unwilling to forgive others, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. That's what Jesus taught. Cut that person up and throw him out. So will it be to the person who does not forgive his brother from the heart, Jesus said. What's James doing? He's using the language and the teaching of his brother, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. What a terrifying thought. That if someone lives their life not having received the mercy of God and not demonstrating mercy toward others, they will receive judgment with no mercy. What makes hell, hell? Judgment of God without mercy. That's the warning. It's almost like Pastor James is painting two extremes. Don't let this be you. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has been showing no mercy. But look at the other extreme, the very end of this section. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. But mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the opposite extreme. This is the hope for the believer. Literally in the Greek, you know what James says? Mercy boasts. Mercy is boasting in the judgment. What does that mean? That the mercy of God has so invaded my life and my heart, it has so transformed me that I know that I've got a firm standing place. I have no fear of coming judgment. I boast in Christ. I triumph in Christ. He has shown me mercy. He has transformed my life. I don't need to fear Judgment is merciless to the one who shows no mercy. But the one who has been transformed and shows mercy, he, he boasts, he exalts, he rejoices in the coming judgment. God's mercy in you overflows from you. Is it so with you? Is it so with you? In verses 8 to 13, we learn about partiality, favoritism, discrimination, judging based upon the outside. We've all been there. We've all seen it. We've all done it. We're all guilty. We know the goal is to love our neighbor, but we've all failed. We've all sinned. Is there... Is there in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, even right here sitting in this room, is there 
the Spirit of God convicting you over a sin in this area. That person that you've judged, that partiality that you have lived out, that discrimination based upon how someone looked, how you perceived them, how they spoke, the kind of lifestyle, the kind of clothing, the kind of power, the kind of prestige. When the Spirit of God convicts the people of God, there's a number of ways that we can respond. If the Spirit of God has brought a sin to your mind, to your heart, maybe something that happened this week, maybe a habit that has begun to form in your life, and it's in your mind right now, you're thinking about it. One way to deal with that would be to excuse your sin. Well, I only do it because of this. Blame shifting. You downplay it. You deflect it. You diminish it. You distract from it. That's not a biblical way to deal with the Spirit's conviction. Another way that some may deal with the Spirit's conviction is to deny. Just to deny the sin. You redefine it. It's not really that bad. It's a respectable sin. You accuse those who point out your sin. They're being judgmental. They're the ones being unloving. But denying the reality of your sin doesn't change the reality of it. If the Spirit of God convicts your heart, don't succumb to shame. Third, don't succumb to shame. Crumble in fear, despair, guilt. You sort of wallow in self-pity. You fall into this like downward spiral of hopelessness and isolation. Rather than looking up to the cross. Looking up to Christ. Seeing him hanging there taking your sin. And rising from the dead. I think another bad way. To respond to the Spirit's conviction in your heart is just to resolve to reform your life harder. I'm going to stir myself up and I'm going to do more for God. I'm going to redouble my efforts. I'm just going to reform my life in a more strict way. I'm going to be stricter in what I do for God. Well, that, that would be legalism. Another bad way to Deal with the Spirit's conviction. Number five is comparing yourself to others. Well, the lady I work with, the guy across the hall, I'm better than they are. It's easy to see the faults in others to justify that I'm better than they are, and thus I'm not really that bad. The better way, the biblical way, to plead, to plead for the grace of God and receive the grace of God. Lord, I own it. I've sinned. This is me as a believer. I'm guilty of this. Oh, Lord, wash me. Oh, Lord, cleanse me. Thank you for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have adopted me, O Father, that you receive me as a son. You treat me as your son forever. It's the only appropriate response 
to the Spirit's convicting work in your heart. We've all been there. Favoritism. Keep the whole law, stumble at one point, we're guilty. We're guilty. But before we go to the Lord's Supper, I want to conclude with this. Our God is the lawgiver. He's given a law. He's given the perfect law. We are the lawbreakers. He's the lawgiver. We're the lawbreakers. Totally convicted. We're totally ruined. Rightly condemned. Entirely lost. Incalculably convicted. Left to ourselves. But Christ is the law fulfiller. He's the law fulfiller. And heaven is for those who are obedient to the law. To which you and I say, I can't go on my own. I could never do that. I could never, ever obey the law perfectly for one hour of my life. But in comes Jesus. The merits of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. He did obey the law in full. And through faith in Jesus, all of that complete obedience is imputed to you and your account. All of it. So hear this. You are saved by works. But they're not your own. You're saved by the merits of Christ. Should you go to heaven? No, we shouldn't in ourselves. But I know I'm going to heaven because I know that Jesus came. He obeyed the law. His righteousness is my righteousness. The man who has received this mercy from God shows mercy to others. We have received the love of Christ. We want to show that love of Christ to others. So what you need in order to enter heaven, Jesus has. Perfect merit, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. Perfect law-keeping. The transfer of all of your sin to Jesus, he took it on the cross, paid for it all. And then the righteousness of Jesus and his obedient life credited to you by faith. What you can't do for yourself because of your guiltiness, Jesus did and he earned for you because of his guiltlessness. What a great God. Church family, as we conclude this time, you and I have received the mercy of God. You and I have received the mercy of God. By the grace of God and with the help and the enabling ability of the Holy Spirit, let's resolve to show mercy to others. Slaying favoritism.
slaying partiality, slaying discrimination, judging based upon externals. Praise God for the simple truth in the word. The goal, to love one another. The guilt, we're lawbreakers. Praise God for the grace. We have received mercy. Father, thank you for the word from James chapter 2 that you have clearly and yet Holy Spirit so convictingly given to us. We take it as a mark of your love for us that you would show us our sin and yet you bring us to Calvary. Holy Spirit, you love to show us Christ. You shine the light upon Christ. You reveal Christ. All of our sin transferred to Christ. All of his obedience transferred to us. What an amazing God that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for this. Gospel. We who were once guilty and dead in our sin, now forgiven and cleansed and cleared and counted righteous because of Christ. All glory be to Christ. In his name we pray.